joy. If ever there was a time that we needed joy in our lives, man, I, uh, I think it's now. As we launch into year two of a, of a global pandemic with all the pain and interruptions, even death that has come with it over this past year, we, we need joy in our lives. And I'm here to tell you this morning that joy is on the horizon. As we come out of this pandemic, as we, as we step into spring, as we get ready to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, joy. That's what I want to focus on this morning. And nowhere better to do that, it would seem to me, and I'm sure you'd agree, than in the pages of Scripture. Joy is everywhere in the Bible. It's sprinkled throughout it from the very beginning to the very closing sections. A variation, different variations of the word joy appear in the Bible 218 times. That's a lot. 155 in the Old Testament and 83 in the New. That actually kind of surprised me. I thought it might be the reverse, but no, the Old Testament full of joy. The New Testament full of joy. Now the Greek word for joy in the New Testament is kara, which means inner gladness. Hold on to that. Inner gladness. Kara. And the Greek word translated rejoice is slightly different. Cairo meaning be well, thrive. Salutations, or it's where we get just the greeting. Hey, cheers. Cairo. Rejoice. The Greek word, by the way, which is even more kind of core, kind of central, that comes from similar place in the Greek for grace is charis. Charis, grace. Kara, joy. Cairo, joyful. Charis, grace. Kara, joy, is built on charis, grace, and that results one way of looking at it, in Cairo, rejoicing. Joy comes through grace and we rejoice. And so in the midst of a planet in great rebellion to its creator, where people are broken, confused, weighed down, full of shame from a life of sin, confused, embarrassed, disgraced, disappointed, in the midst of a global pandemic that at first was going to go for a few weeks it seemed and then we would clear it out and move on but it has been relentless for a year political upheaval that continues on well after the national elections where people are worried and fearful and anxious in the midst of all that now a number of months into 2000. 21, we dare to say with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Philippians 4.4, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he like doubles down in Philippians 4.4. Again, I say rejoice. It would seem to me that the Apostle Paul, like you and me, had a lot going on in his life where joy was maybe not the natural response but in the midst of it all Paul like he encourages us rejoices I heard a while back an, an acronym 
for rejoicing, and it goes like this. I will receive everything joyfully only in Christ every day. I will receive everything joyfully that comes my way only in Christ, firmly in Christ every day, even now. Even in the midst of wearing these annoying, ridiculous masks. Man, I, I cannot wait for the day when Amy and I go out in the backyard and pile up all the masks, put gasoline on them and just ignite them. Like, I, I am looking forward to that day. Even then, in the midst of all we're wrestling with today, we choose to say to each other, rejoice, be well. Be of good cheer. There is hope on the horizon, even when it doesn't look like it. But it can be life looking for hope deceiving. And so this morning, may we ask with the psalmist, why? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, the psalmist responds to his own questions. Put your hope in God, my soul, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. It's from Psalm 42. Or this, from Paul in Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. And may we take God's promise at face value as he gives it to us in the verse that I want to look at this morning. In this series that we're going through leading up to Easter. Isaiah 61.7. Isaiah 61.7 is one of the clearest statements about joy in all of scripture. And I'd invite you to turn with me there now. In a moment, I want to look at that one verse, and I actually want to read it out of quite a number of translations. So what you might do is have your phone out. I mean, you can use your Bible, just grab that, but grab your phone and be ready to Google each of these versions. It'll come at you quick, and you can read along, and the nuances are just super interesting. I want to read in a few moments from the RSV, the NIV, the King James, the Message, and one more. But before I do, I want to take a quick look at the background of this verse. For a 60-year period between um, 598 and 538 BC, Jews from Judah were held captive in Babylon, a foreign land, strange customs, a culture that was antithetical to following the one true God. This was not easy. These people struggled greatly to keep it together, but they hung in there. Captive, struggling in a pagan, terrible land, and yet they held on to each other and to the Lord as best they could. And yet they were losing hope. They were hoping for better days, but that hope seemed to be fleeting and distant. Like, where was God? Was he, would he ever help us? Would he ever take us to a new place? To give them a sense of hope, to to assure the people that God had not abandoned them, he raised up prophets that spoke truth, spoke the word of God into their lives. Like Isaiah, one of the greatest, who would pen some of the most powerful, beautiful prose ever written in human history, let alone 
speak God's truth to a people in great distress. Not that different from where you and I are today, it would seem to me. Of all the powerful things Isaiah wrote, a few stand out, including the verse that I want to read to you from different versions this morning. Isaiah 61.7. Let's take a look at that. And again, I'll tell you where I'm reading each of these from, and you can just pop it out or jot it down and, and look at them later. First from the NIV, probably the version you have before you. Isaiah 61.7 from the NIV. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. And then from the RSV, I remember the RSV, maybe a few of you do too from when I was a kid. NIV wasn't on the horizon yet. Isaiah 61, 7 from the RSV. Instead of your shame, you shall have a double portion. Instead of dishonor, you will receive in your lot. Therefore, in your land, you shall possess a double portion. Yours shall be everlasting joy. And then from the King James Version. I, I don't know if you ever just kind of flip over when you're looking at a passage and go, I wonder what King James uh, how, how it's read there. It, sometimes it's kind of helpful if you can get through the these and the thous and the thithers. King James, for your shame ye shall have double. And for confusion, that's the first time that in any of these translations is used, the word confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess the double Everlasting joy shall be upon them. And then the message. I don't know, like sometimes the message nails it for me and sometimes I think it misses it for me. You know, the great debate rages on. Is it translation? Is it a paraphrase? Probably in this case way more of a paraphrase from the message. Isaiah 61, 7. Because you got a double dose of trouble and more than your share of contempt... Your inheritance in the land will be doubled, and your joy will go on forever. And then one more. I, I don't know. I, I don't know the history of this. Um, I mean, I kind of do, but, uh, and I've never used it in a message before, but from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, and of course, this verse comes to us originally in Hebrew, um, here it is, and I'm even going to throw a few Jewish words, or uh, rather Hebrew words in there. The Orthodox Jewish Bible, Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of your busha, shame, ye shall have mishnah, double portion. And the kwala, dishonor, they shall yaranu, Rejoice in their chelek portion. Therefore, in their land, they will possess the mishnah, the double portion, simhat kiam, everlasting joy shall be unto them. So in one verse, kind of a powerful dichotomy. On the one hand, on the one hand, Isaiah speaks of 
shame, of dishonor, of confusion. Shame, dishonor, confusion. Did you catch that? Uh, life in America in 2021, shame, dishonor, confusion. How little has changed through the millennia, it would seem to me. On the other hand, he speaks about over-the-top blessings, rejoicing, and joy that lasts forever. And forever is a really, really, really long time. So you have this dichotomy going on. And I, and I want to pick up on those kind of two thoughts, those two words, worlds a little bit this morning. And how we might stay in one and stay away from the other. First, the world of shame, dishonor, and confusion. Now, in the beginning, there was none of that. You know, you, you read about Adam and Eve, and everything was great because everything was just as God had ordered it. And, and God know, know, knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing in that moment. And everything was, was ideal. Everything was perfect. There was no shame. There was no dishonor. There was no confusion whatsoever. Perfect harmony with God, with creation, with each other. It was beautiful. It was a garden of Eden after all. And then, you, you know the story, temptation, the devil, bad choices, sin, blame, shame, dishonor, disobedience, confusion, hiding, all of those horrible things entered in. And you know the story. You've, you've known the story since you were a little kid. And we humans have never been the same since. So, so that reality keeps popping up through Scripture, which I don't know about you, but I really appreciate. Like I see my world, I see my heart, I see me in those things, in those pages. The struggle rages on from Adam, from Eve, all the way up to this day in me. And so we know, as Isaiah's original audience knew, all about the shame, all about the bouchah. We know all about that. Shame is something that can be put upon us. It can be a verb, but it can also be a noun, something that we possess. And that is the case here in this, in this verse. Bouchah. It's a noun. It's something we possess. Every version that I just read said, your shame, your bouchah, your shame. We own it. We sinned. We blew it. We fell short of the glory of God. And the result is shame. Humans, Mark Twain once wrote, are the only living things on earth that blush or need to. Man, I love that quote. Humans are the only living things on earth that blush or need to. I mean, Adam and Eve knew all about shame. The Jews in Babylonian captivity knew all about shame. You and I, we know firsthand all about shame. Even here, 
in a postmodern world where shame is relentlessly pretty much washed out, like non-existent. Even here in the 21st century in America, where anything goes, where there's no objective truth to speak of, where we pretend that there's nothing to be ashamed of, because you go do your thing and I'll go do mine and whatever. That is the world which we relentlessly have put upon us and we've embraced for us and tragically for our kids. But you and I know, I mean, come on. You and I know that we have plenty to be ashamed of. As a person, as a man, as a woman, as a family, as a community, as a nation, as humanity, before a perfect and righteous God, standing before Scripture, which has been truth, is truth, will always be the truth, standing before Jesus who claims to be the truth, we know full well about shame. And so a verse like this just rings true. It rings true. Shame, Bouchah. And then comes in the same little verse, dishonor, Kuala. Kuala in Hebrew means confusion. And one translation picked up and used that word, chaos. A collective mess, a predicament of grave proportions, stuck, dishonor. A state of being in which we have no idea how to get out. And try as we may, the more we try to get out, the more stuck we become. It's like quicksand. Quicksand is a reference that I think fits well here. I mean, that sounds familiar. Doesn't that sound familiar to you over this past year, you, you global pandemic warriors, you and me? Us humans that battle sin and the devil and disappointment every day, the harder we try to fix it, the more stuck and hopeless we become. For you, for me, Isaiah has good news. Isaiah has incredibly good news. Fortunately, there's a word before Bouchah, shame. And that same word appears before Kuala, or confusion. It's the word instead. Instead. Takat in Hebrew. Instead. I mean, imagine how depressing it would be if you read that verse and there was no instead. You know what I'm saying? And, and I would suggest that you and I are not capable of bringing about the instead, as we're about to see. But there is, there is hope, and it's what comes after the instead. To cut is a word used actually in Genesis 1. When God divided the waters with the firmament. I always have trouble saying that. Firmament. <laughs> all of the earth was covered with water. It was all water. And God decided that some of his planet would be land. 
instead. So Isaiah, looking at the pervasiveness of shame and confusion, it was all over the land. It was everywhere. In Babylon, with those in captivity, it was, it was everywhere. Speaks truth. And it's like he says, look, I, I know you were full of shame. I know you can't do anything about it. I know you were confused. I know that things look hopeless. And apart from God, they are. But know this. Instead of shame, you will have a double portion of God's goodness. Instead of dishonor and confusion, you will receive an amazing gift of God. It's, it's all about the instead you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Not on your own anyways. And you were right. You are hopeless in and of yourself. But it's in those times when it all seems lost, hopeless, hopelessness, that God breaks through to demonstrate his power. It's not so much that he likes moments like that in our lives, but he seizes the day and the moment. And he steps in and he demonstrates his power. And when that happens, it's an opportunity for pure joy to come flooding into our lives as James so well describes in James 1. Consider it pure joy, James writes, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And then he goes to unpack that. Read the first chapter of James this afternoon. And so what is that pure joy? What is joy? Well, first, I would suggest that joy, as it's laid out in Scripture, is internal. It's internal. It's different from happiness. You know, happiness is sort of dependent on the externals that kind of come our way. It's shallow, it's fleeting, and it's feeling different, driven. Joy is internal. It's deep. It's long-lasting. It's not dependent on how we feel. Not dependent on circumstances. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Even though, listen to all these even though. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms. Even if there's no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crops fail and the fields lie empty and barren. Even though the flocks die in the field and the cattle barns are empty and Everything is gone and we're in the middle of a global pandemic and this is disappointing and that is sad and that is lost. And we've lost a lot this past year, including lives. Even then, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful. How? Just kind of conjuring it. No. In the Lord of my salvation. In the God of my salvation. That is where Habakkuk writes, I find my joy. Joy is internal. Secondly, joy is a gift. Isaiah says three times in this one verse, 61.7. You will receive. You will receive. You will receive. He says it three times. So he doesn't say go do. He says, you will receive. Here, here you go. Here, here you go. Here, here you go. You can't conjure it up. 
You can't will yourself to be joyful. Joy, writes C.S. Lewis, is never in our own power. Pleasure often is, though. I love that, man. C.S. Lewis nails it. Joy is never in our own power. It comes from the Lord. Joy is a gift, and it comes from the hand of God. In order to be in a position to be filled with all joy and peace, in order to abound in hope, as Paul writes in Romans 15, you need to be in his presence to get the gift. Gifts don't just magically appear. Someone gives you a birthday present, they initiate it, and they usually show up and hand it to you. And that's the way it is with the gift of joy from the Lord. Joy is internal. Joy is a gift. And thirdly, joy is a a decision. You receive the gift and you have a choice to make. Either you open it and embrace it or put it on the shelf and eventually forget about it. God gives us so many gifts wrapped up in the person of his ultimate gift. It's what Christmas is all about, his son. And we embrace him. We give ourselves fully over to him. We love him as he first loved us. We say thank you to him with cries of joy. Jesus, I'm convinced, feeds off of our joy. Just like we as parents and grandparents love it when our kids and our grandkids and people we care about are filled with joy. It's better than when we're filled with it ourselves. And so we're in relationship with a high and holy God that finds great pleasure in our joy. And he gives it to us. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, Psalm 47, 1. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Isaiah 12, 6. There's so many verses like that. Where even the mountains clap and the rocks shout praise if humans don't. But trust me, God would much rather have us humans finding great joy in the worship of him. Joy is internal. Joy is a gift. Joy is a decision. And finally, joy is eternal. Yours will be an everlasting joy, writes Isaiah. And in Isaiah 35, 10, he doubles down, and those the Lord has rescued will return. Great hope there. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. And and then this imagery, again, so powerful. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Listen to me. Gladness and joy in the presence of the Lord, will overtake you. It'll overwhelm you like a giant wave. And sorrow and sighing and all that goes with that will flee away. Will flee away. Again, that dichotomy is just so clear in Scripture. Listen, there is a day coming, a day when this pandemic ends. It's not going to be like this forever. When that day comes... We'll, again, throw away our masks, but not yet. And we'll run around hugging everybody and getting in each other's space. That'll be awesome. And 
And that will be a foretaste of a much more, much, infinitely more unbelievable day. A day when we will be permanently overtaken by gladness and joy in heaven. Sorrow and sighing, shame, confusion, illness, death, depression, all that will be gone. There won't be any of that. None. Zero. Fly away. And how will that happen? Well, listen to this. Again, a great promise from the pen of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 25, 7 to 9. On this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that enfolds all people. A bad shroud that enfolds all people. The Lord is just going to swallow that up. The sheet that covers all nations. And then this, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away every tear from every face and remove the disgrace. Will remove the disgrace and the shame of his people from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. And in that day, it will be said, surely this is our God. We have waited for him. He has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Again, that's Isaiah 25, 7 and 9. And so let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. In the days ahead and the weeks ahead. And every moment that he gives us life. I want to close with this. It was uh, an event that happened back in the mid-1800s. There was a young man named Samuel Trevor Francis. He was born in England um, in 1834. And as a teenager, he struggled greatly. Just had a lot of issues in his life. Severe depression. Lots of anxiety. I mean, he'd grown up in the church. He great family, but just really struggled. And so one dark evening, out on the bridge over the River Thames, he walked out and he was determined to jump off that bridge and end it all. To end, to end the pain. And he wrote later that as he stood there, Determined to do this, standing there alone, he felt overwhelmed by the presence and the power of God. Like the Holy Spirit just came on him. And he realized a lot of things that he had kind of heard in Sunday school, but it had never sunk down deep in his heart. And he was so overwhelmed by it, he walked back off the bridge. He, he didn't jump off that night. And he lived to a ripe old age of, I think, around 90 and throughout his life, he was a businessman, but he devoted his life to preaching, to telling people that needed to hear about Jesus, and he devoted his life to hymn writing. And he went on to pen some of the greatest hymns that we still sing to this very day. And one of the most powerful that I've loved through the years is, is one you'll recognize. Oh, the love, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And I want to close with the lyrics from that hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, 
in the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to the glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth me, ever loveth, changing never, never more. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every, love the best. Tis an ocean full of blessing. Tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory. For it lifts me up to thee. And may it be so.